This is an ABC podcast. You're listening to A Big Country. I'm Clint Jasper. It's lovely to have your company as we join our reporters meeting the people and visiting the places that make up A Big Country. This week, we're visiting a Tasmanian farm that's one of only a handful in Australia growing pine nuts to harvest one of the world's most expensive nut crops. We'll meet the makers bringing an ancient alcoholic drink into the modern age, and we'll hear about the work of a community group with an ambitious goal of planting half a million trees to create a wildlife corridor for koalas in their region. They're already well on the way with 250,000 trees in the ground, and they're seeing the rewards of their hard work. When you're up at the top of the hill and you're looking at different stages of all these plantings and you can see the connection and you can see the corridor beginning to come about and you just think it's worth all the blood, sweat and tears. Making progress on a wildlife corridor for koalas, that story is coming up. First today, we're riding the school bus with kids from remote properties in far western Queensland. Three years ago, the primary school in the tiny town of Stonehenge had just three students and parents were worried about whether it could stay open. The community decided to start a school bus service to get the kids who were studying online at properties out of town to come into the classroom. And it's worked. Dan Prosser has the story. Good morning, girls. How are we today, Mila, Ruby and Mum? It's seven o'clock and school bus driver Deb Porter is picking up kids on an hour-long road trip to one of the most remote primary schools in Australia, in the town of Stonehenge, population of 44. We're right to go. OK, kids, all belts on, sitting back. The daily bus run only started three years ago and local dad Mick Campbell admits it was a bit of an experiment. 2019... Uh, the Stonehenge School had three kids enrolled there, so it was initiated by the principal at the time to run a pilot bus program. There was no guarantees it was going to work. But it has. Children living on remote stations have switched from online learning to the classroom, and the school now has 17 students. So valuable. It's, it's, it frees up my time, you know, and, and the kids... The kids love it. Grazier Suzanne Laidler drives her children 30 kilometres down a dirt driveway to meet the bus. I ask them all the time if they want to come back and, and me teach them. Hey, Mum, no. <laughs> they love the interaction. They love it. Well, we wouldn't be there if the bus run didn't run. I mean, there's no way I would travel 100k either way, you know. So the bus run is vital. And I mean, you know, the bus run's vital to keep the school going too, I think, because there's a lot of, there's only two children not on the bus run. Yeah, and it's a great, it's a great community. Like it's a great because of the bus run, it's all country kids. They're a great bunch of kids, and yeah, it's um, very vital. And our and our bus driver, <laughs> we love our bus driver. I hope she stays on for a few more years yet. <laughs> but no, she's fabulous. The kids love her. Um, she's great. She's very caring. Very. She gets them to and from school very safely. Um, we couldn't ask for a better, better bus driver. Reliable. There. She's here every morning, every afternoon. She's great. Finding a reliable driver in such a remote area was one of the biggest challenges. Until 66-year-old grandmother Deb Porter decided to give it a crack. Come here, my precious cargo. I've called them that ever since I started driving the bus. And it's a job she loves. As you're getting older, like a middle, mature age as they call us, it's nice to have that feeling that you, you need it, I guess. 
you need it and that you're doing something that's helping somebody and it does wonders for yourself and your mental and your well-being. That's it. And I love those kids and the people and the families. It's just been... It's been the best thing for me. Parent Mick Campbell says the school bus service has now qualified for a Queensland government subsidy. I think the bus run and the extra students in there keeping that school alive has kept the town alive as well. And it's and created jobs. Education expert Dr Tanya Leach from the University of Southern Queensland says it shows the power of community. So this is significant. It keeps the school uh, functioning and it, keep, it keeps it viable. But in some communities, uh, a bus run won't save the school. We had examples in uh, some of our mining towns before there were no youth in the community. And guess that highlights is every solution is contextual, but the core of it is when you have communities and schools working together, we really do have uh, equitable access to education and the uh, choices for kids to access quality education face-to-face. In the hustle and bustle of the classroom, packed with eager learners, Stonehenge State School Principal Bridget Ryan sees firsthand the value of the bus run. The bus run to us is very important um, in the sense that it's bringing five of our families to school every day. So 11 kids are on the bus. Um, so it is a full bus and Deb, she's incredible in bringing them to school, um, picking them up, taking them home. So yeah, we absolutely love having our bus run. I think the benefit of being in a small school is that our students are exposed to curriculum right through because we do a multi-age teaching. I think the benefits to being in our school is that they are socialising with other kids. At the moment we're quite fortunate because we have a number of kids around the same age so they are getting on quite well with each other, playing in the playground and just listening to them laughing at lunch is just beautiful. Back on the bus, it's an approach that these students are happy to celebrate. It has been a busy few years for a community group working on a project to restore koala habitat in the Northern Rivers region of New South Wales. Bangalore Koalas has a goal to plant 500,000 trees by 2025 to create a wildlife corridor connecting habitat across the region. The group recently reached a milestone of 250,000 trees in the ground. President Linda Sparrow says since 2019, they've completed 91 plantings on 69 properties across six local shires. When you're up at the top of the hill and you're looking at different stages of all these plantings and you can see the connection and you can see the corridor beginning to come about and you just think it's worth all the blood, sweat and tears. Hello, I'm Kim Honan. If Linda and her crew weren't busy enough, floods in the region last year made for even more work as they replanted trees that were wiped out by flood water. I thought last year was bad, this year is just as busy, but last year we planted just under 83,000 trees and then on top of that we planted another 25,500 infills for about 10 properties that got wiped out by the floods through grant money that I actually applied for. And the first trees that you planted in 2019, how are they looking now? 
oh, they've they've got koalas using them. So so myself and the other Linda that works for us a couple of days a week, we went out last week into a property in two properties in Bangalore, and those trees were planted some in three years ago, some two years ago, and they've already got scats and scratches of koalas. So the koalas are already using those trees. How many landholders have you been working with? Well, we've actually worked with 69 landholders and there's quite a lot of them are actually farmers now. So it's more farmers offering up large areas of their land. There's a variety of farmers all over the place, out west Kyogle, um, down in the Richmond Valley, uh, here in Lismore, in Byron and Ballina. And they're all coming to us. And what do they see as the main benefits of having these koala trees on their properties? Well, well a lot of them, it's bare paddock. It's empty paddock that we're one property at Backmead that we went to and we're going to be planting soon. And the 360 uh, view at the top of his hill was just empty. So he sees a benefit of like planting trees out. It's, it benefits the cattle for shade and stuff like that and it and the quality of the soil and all those sorts of things that it's actually it's a win-win for everyone. Tree number 250,000 was planted on Mindy Greenwood's 10 hectare property at Gulmanga northwest of Lismore. So this is pretty much a um, life goal for me. This is something I've wanted to do since I was a young adult just buy a chunk of land and plant it out for um, biodiversity. We bought this place about five years ago and have been trying to kind of slowly chip away at it, but it's such a big thing to try and do when you've got a family and you're both working full-time, so we didn't make much progress. So you've got trees going in at the front of your property, but also down the back of the property, yeah? Yep, all the way back down to the creek, so it'll be a nice long strip and hopefully the goal has always been, and I tell my kids we've got that big gum tree down near the mailbox, um, the goal is to make it so the koalas can get from the creek to the mailbox without having to come down to the ground. Bangalore Koalas is working with three nurseries, three bush regeneration companies and three Indigenous ranger groups to get 90,000 trees planted this year. Forgettable rangers, Naeem Williams and Jerome Green from Mooley Mooley, it's good to be working on traditional country. They strong, like I said, gizable um, men and just love, you know what I mean, regenerating you know, I mean, the, our native land, you know, so, you know, given sort of um, the respect back to our people that managed our land for over, you know, I mean, 200,000 years, so, yeah, that's how much I'm proud, proud I am, yeah. yeah. It's also, also just to work with, you know, your cousins and stuff too as well. It helps us connect the country, so, yeah, that's pretty much it, man. Wild, I can join it too as well. And what sort of other work do you do as a ranger? But, you know, fencing, bush region, yeah, so. Yeah, like bush region and land management, horticulture, and, yeah, like, even we do surveys for native um, animals, so it's good, like, working, like I said, with all the brothers, reconnecting, we go off track a bit, but then we've got this here as a tool to, you know, like, help us in our own um, life journey too, eh, brother? Yeah. And have you been <laughs> super busy since the floods a, a year ago with the, the regen work and planting trees? Been super busy, so a lot of lot of things have come up too as well after the floods, you know. So yeah, we pretty flat out every day. So. Yeah. 
Skittable Rangers, Nahum Williams and Jerome Green from Muli Muli. They've been involved in a project to restore koala habitat in the Northern Rivers region of New South Wales, where they spoke to reporter Kim Honan. Before that, Dan Prosser joined kids catching the bus to their primary school, one of the most remote in the country, in outback Queensland. You'll find more on both of those stories on the RN homepage. Head to the website at abc.net.au slash rn and look for a big country. I'm Clint Jasper with you on RN. Still to come, we'll meet a very patient farmer. He's growing pine nuts and waiting years for his first harvest. And the future of mead, the honey-based alcoholic drink consumed by Vikings and ancient Egyptians, is getting a modern makeover at one of Australia's most awarded meaderies. Jennifer Nichols caught up with Nicola Cleaver from Amrita Park Meadery in Queensland's Sunshine Coast hinterland. We've been launching the sparkling range, the session mead, so the pink grapefruit and lots of traditionals coming along with our own honey that we've been harvesting because the bees have been going absolutely um, gangbusters in the garden. Lots of gardening, just planting in a heap more uh, native trees for the bees so we can really up our honey production. And yeah, lots of mead making, big festivals um, all throughout the winter seasons. The Abbey Medieval Festival would have to be your biggest event on the calendar? Yes, that's our biggest weekend so you've got 35,000 Vikings lining up to buy mead so it's a bit hectic yeah and maidens and mead maidens yeah they make very long queues for us it's not just a thick sticky dessert drink it can be bone dry it can be sparkling it can be semi-dry semi-sweet malamels which is the addition of fruits or just traditionals which is just showcasing all the honey styles so just really getting the mead out there in general and for people who don't know about the history of mead can you explain a little bit about it? Yes, it predates any beer, any wine. It's been found in Chinese tombs over 10,000 years ago. It's been in everybody's history and culture and religion. It's actually a naturally occurring alcohol. So if you come across a wild hive in a forest and because honey has its own bacteria and yeast, some rainwater that had gotten in that hive would have created a traditional mead, which is honey, water and yeast. So Mother Nature basically invented mead. Where are you sourcing? most of your ingredients now? Most of our ingredients come from Amrita Park. So we have about six varieties of orange and lemon that we put in our citrus and chai spice. We still use Tahitian limes from a lady called Laura up near Kinkin and she does all the fruit grafting for the citrus farms and the byproduct is the limes which we're lucky enough to have. All the pink grapefruit come actually from next door. They have a lot of trees but they don't like eating the fruit <laughs> so we get to use that. And also the passion fruit still comes from Beanham Valley Passions and yeah we have our own Jipotacabas and we still have our own Gramachama cherries, Acerola cherries and I've also just made a mulberry mead which is really looking forward to getting into the bottle for winter this year. What is the modern interest in this ancient alcohol? Ooh, it would have to be the sparkling session meads at the moment. They're really taking off especially in summertime. It's a very easy drinking, lighter style mead and you can get it in a can. You've done a lot of work to stream line your production area. Yeah, uh, we're looking at building another shed and um, yes, and another sort of packing area and refrigeration facilities. Storage is our number one at the moment. That's Nicola Cleaver and Andy Coates is the other half of this partnership (laughs) at Amrita Park Meadery. Andy, you've actually got this new sparkling pink grapefruit mead. Yeah, it's a bit of a new product for us. Mead sort of, a lot of people shy away from it in summertime. They think it's a bit of a winter drink, which isn't really true 
true, but yeah, fresh fruity flavours mixed with the honey, lower alcohol, comes in a can, we do all the canning on site and all our labelling is still all done by us. It's um, taking off around the place, Loose Hinterland Brewing Company and a couple of little places like that, really local places that we're really sharing the love and the punters are really liking it. What goes into making a sparkling grapefruit mead? Because the alcohol content is much lower, so it's around about the five, five and a half percent. The process is similar, but the starting gravity is a little bit less, so that we don't have as high uh, alcohol, and it's a much drier product, so it's not quite as sweet. Starting, starting gravity. gravity. Yeah, so, <laughs> so you, you measure how much sugars is in your um, mixture or your wort to start with. It's actually called a must in mead making. So similar to beer or wine, there's a start gravity. There's a lot of sugar to start with, and then the yeast consume the sugar and convert that to alcohol and carbon dioxide. So if you start with less, then there's less alcohol in the end and it's a drier product and less sugars left. Okay, well, should we give it a go? Why not? We'll um, crack a can. It's a, a big mouth can, so you get to have sort of have a bit of a smell and stuff as well. Sort of a little bit of a cross between champagne and cider, I guess. Yeah, but it's got nice um, honey notes and a little bit of a bitterness right at the end from the grapefruit. Oh, so that's very really interesting. Yeah, yeah. So it's a classic summer flavours. Grapefruit can tend to be a bit sour, but this isn't. No, so we choose a couple of different varieties of grapefruit, so mainly Ruby and Rio, and we use those varieties because they're quite a sweet. There's a touch of bitterness, which you want, just enough to balance out the little bit of residual sweetness in the sparkling mead. Yeah, it's very refreshing and, as you are saying, light. Yes, yeah. Nicola Cleaver was saying that you've increased the number of hives on your property too. You're actually beekeeping yourself, <laughs> or you're still getting an apiarist in? Uh, so it's a bit of a mix. We have increased beekeeping's pretty addictive and I've sort of been pretty hot on catching a few swarms and yeah beekeeping's the more you know the more you realise you don't know and it's I'm always liking to learn things so that's always fun but the honey that we get on site is going towards some uh, really interesting varieties we got a very strange honey that was a lot of wattle and things like that in the flavours and very very yellow so we've just put down a batch of that so it's sort of smaller batch with our honeys but yeah definitely still buying in tons at a time so we bought in three tons just recently. We got ironbark, we got avocado, macadamia, bimble box, which is just, uh, yeah, something I had never had before. And uh, yeah, I'm really excited to start playing with that one. You still enjoying it? Yeah, yeah, still enjoying it. The paperwork side of things, not so much, but yeah, the festivals, the meeting people, the slow foods, the big family of people that we meet at events and things. Yeah, it's great. Love it. Wouldn't be doing anything else. In the back of my mind, I just thought there must be something else that's possible to do with the land that, that if you're a small producer and not really in the, the, the game of cattle and sheep in vast numbers, there's something else you can do with your land and that you didn't need to get into grapes or, or massive stuff. That, and also that it suited the climate and that, um, the rainfall better than what we were currently using. And I'd heard about pine nuts years and years ago and I thought mm, maybe that, that might be a viable thing. That thought prompted farmer and agricultural scientist Andrew Bailey to plant pine trees with the hope of one day harvesting pine nuts on his property here in northern Tasmania. I've had the place 25 years and the, sh the pine trees have been in for um, about 12 years and, and uh, from an environmental point of view or production point of view it fits perfectly with um, where they would grow in Europe in this, at the same latitude. Hello, I'm Larissa Smith and I'm visiting Andrew here at Winkley just out of Launceston in the West Tamar region. 
the trees he's growing here are native to Mediterranean Europe and a different species to pine trees grown for their timber. Totally different, yeah. Um, they do have a timber aspect to them, but it's it's not considered uh, brilliant sort of wood. You know, Pinus radiata definitely has that market stitched up. But in Europe, they are a native species that grow out in the, the country uh, and particularly, for example, during the war when food was short, people would go out in the forest and collect pine cones and get the nuts out of those as a, a way of supplementing um, their diet because food was so scarce. And, and it's probably a bit like um, in Australia, we might wander out and collect mushrooms or, or bush tucker and that sort of stuff. Um, in Europe, it, it fills a similar sort of role. While pine trees are proving a good fit for this property, growing nuts for harvest is a pursuit that requires a good deal of patience. I've had um, the first lot in since 2015 and they have their uh, three years worth of cones on them because as I said the, the cones take three years to mature and um, so it's not a crop like, an, a, like a typical crop where you have an annual um, takeoff. Uh, you've got to be very patient and um, but it's obvious which which cones belong to which year because they start from being a jelly jelly bean sort of size and then they'll go through to being something the size of a large grapefruit. So weigh possibly just under a kilo. So realistically, how many years will it take for you to harvest your first pine nuts? <laughs> That's that's the challenging question because there's there's only four of us in Australia that I know of that are doing this and and one of the producers in Victoria has has probably uh, been going five or six years longer than me and he's he's definitely um, harvesting reasonable quantities. I'm looking to possibly harvest the first set of pines in maybe next year, maybe the year after. We still might be five or six years down the track before we've got enough where you've got uh, a saleable quantity. Can you find me a small cone on this tree or do we have to go hunting so I can see what it looks like? If we look further into the tree, what chance I've actually seen there's One a couple there. The previous year. Now you can see that's buried about um, two foot into the tree. And looking at that one, it's it's um it's pliable. It hasn't gone black because I've been talking to researchers in Chile and um, they've given me some some ideas on things to look for just so you understand uh, how the whole thing's progressing and whether whether that cone has died along the way or whether it's still viable and um, and and hopefully growing to its three-year end. There's another one just here as well. And that, that cone's about the size of a macadamia nut, so yes. not not the full full quid that, no, that you could uh, associate with a pine tree. Well, yes, and but you can appreciate that it's got a lot of growing to do in the next... Um, presumably this is from last year, so it's got a lot of do, growing to do in the next two years to get to that sort of eight or 900 gram size. And how tall can the trees get? I believe they get to about 60 metres, but that's that's going to be well past my my lifetime. Um, they also grow to about 150 years. So in, if they become as productive as they are in Europe, then the cost of planting and everything else is, is well and truly paid for in the lifetime of the tree. <laughs> the, the big challenge will be once we've got pine cones that are ready to, to harvest, getting the, the infrastructure to make that work efficiently. 
that the cones normally, with warm weather, will open and sort of dehiss like other sort of plants do, and pop that that seed out. Now the the challenge with these pine trees is that the seed comes out much like a pistachio seed so it's already encased in a shell and then we've got to further process that to get uh, that seed out and then you've got to polish it and it's fit for consumption. How much are you hoping to make from these In terms of product, in terms of kilograms, that again's an unknown because in the European context, they, they grow them differently. Uh, the first one is they tend to have them almost scattered, although they're moving to a more a plantation approach. The best examples we can look at are probably the Chilean experience and maybe the, the New Zealand one, but the Chileans are 50 years ahead of us. And so they've, they've approached it very much from a production point of view. And they, they talk between... 600 I think is and 1500 kilograms of nuts per hectare and then you go there's only four percent nuts out of all that mass so we're only talking hundreds or at best 100 kilos maybe or 200 kilos per hectare but they are the most expensive nut in the world for food nuts so hopefully the economics is there and we'll overcome all the challenges along the way. Pine nut grower Andrew Bailey speaking to Larissa Smith from his property in northern Tasmania. For more on that story, head online to the RN homepage. If you click on the Programs tab and look for A Big Country, you'll find links to all of the stories you've heard today. That is the show for today. I'm Clint Jasper and I'll be back next week with more stories from beyond the city. I'll speak to you then. Listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio, and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.